Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for that portion I was read previously in Ephesians. When we think, our blessed God, of the tremendous thought or the words fail, how we were chosen in Christ. Not because of anything we did, anything we were going to do, anything that we're doing now. We were chosen in him before the foundations of the world. You loved us. You set your love upon us. It can, then came that day, and I love that phrase, our dear brother uses it so often, Holy Spirit, or grace, however he words it, love, arrest that man, that woman. Stop him in their tracks. They're mine. I poured my blood out. What more? What more, Lord Jesus, could you have done? What more could you have given? It wasn't Gabriel or Michael the archangel. It was your beloved son. Your son. Perhaps, he said, they will reverence my son. Oh, our hearts are poured out in praise this morning to you, blessed God, for the unspeakable gift. That gift that continually, just above and beyond what we could imagine, blesses us infinitely, day by day. Lead us out. Anoint our brother that he might, this morning, be beside himself, as Paul could say, for your glory. Lord, fill him with your spirit. Give him your words and speak to every heart from the oldest to the youngest that is here this morning. We just commend them to thee, Lord Jesus, for your glory and honor. We ask it in your blessed name. Amen. Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. It's not the most preachable book in the Bible. I can tell you that as a preacher. I've never preached out of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's unlike many other books of the Bible, and I hope you've already learned that so far, and we'll continue, hopefully even today, to learn more about that. But the Bible is made up, as we know, 66 books, right? And I like to think of all of the books of the Bible are significant. It's sort of like a puzzle. I don't know if you've ever put a puzzle together and you're missing a couple of pieces. It just doesn't seem right, you know. There's no piece that's missing that God intended to be there so we could get the whole picture. So we know and believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So we're attempting to try to go through the book of Ecclesiastes and turn with me now to chapter 3 and we're going to begin at verse number 16 and I'm reading in the English Standard Version. 3.16 of Ecclesiastes. Moreover, I saw under the sun, there's that familiar expression again, under the sun, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. How appropriate in the day that we're living in, isn't it? 
I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows where the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what shall be after him? Verse 1 of chapter 4. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. These are the injustices. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil days that are done under the sun. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. We have to give credit to the author of this book who says, I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. The writer of this book, likely Solomon, I'm not going to be dogmatic and say it's him. This person personifies wisdom. Solomon would be the best choice you could say for that. But this person is saying, I, had, I gave my heart to seek and search out all things that are done under heaven. We have to compliment them for that. And it's, a, it's sort of a, uh, a very convicting sentence for all of us. How much thought do we give to life about when we were born, how we live, what we're living for, what's the future hold, where's our gold, what's it all about, what's after this lifetime? The Christian above everybody else should have that spiritual mind to be thinking about these important things. What is your life? Well, here we have in the book of Ecclesiastes some very unique things that need to be passed out in careful ways. And I'm going to hopefully help you a little bit on that this afternoon. When you think of the books of the Bible, what book to you is like the hottest one? Anybody want to uh, volunteer what their suggestion would be? What's the hottest book in the Bible for you? What did you say? Leviticus. That's the most popular one I would say that people are going to say they have a difficulty with. Understandable. There's a lot of different offerings and details. Go ahead, Judy. I mean, uh, Julie. Go ahead, Julie. Ezekiel, thank you. Um, And we could probably take more, I'm sure. The book of Revelation can be very difficult to understand. Easy to read, but difficult to understand. Um, The book of Exodus, chapter 25 to 40, all those fine details about the tabernacle, 
You just kind of want to skip over them almost, like you might want to in the book of First Chronicles, the first 10 or 11 chapters, where it has all the genealogies of people from way back forever. It seems like it goes on and on and on. And you get the same thing in Numbers, chapter 1 to chapter 4. You have a list of all of the names of the people that belong to the various tribes. Ezekiel, she mentioned, chapter 40 to 48, we have all the fine details about this glorious Ezekielian temple, and it's just mind-boggling with all of the details that are given in there. And then you have a book like Zechariah. I think Zechariah could be the most difficult book in in the whole of the Bible to understand. Uh, Joshua has portions in it from chapter 13 to around 20 or, uh, or 19 or so, where you have the divisions of the land, and the land that they were both to go in and possess and inherit it, and all the different spaces that were supposed to be filled by the tribes as they enter into their particular lot. The Song of Solomon can also be somewhat difficult and puzzling, because you're not sure how to apply that, and who the author is really directing it to. Or oh, I should say always and I know you understand this, it's the Holy Spirit is behind it all. Because all of these 66 books, approximately 35 plus authors, were all carried along by the Holy Spirit. These weren't their own words. That's why it goes on to say that it was not according to their own will. They didn't concoct these things because they were smarter, intelligent people or they came up with these fable ideas. It was because God was inspiring them to write what they wrote. Then you have easier books like Ruth and Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, the Gospels, the Epistles. Amen to that. Well, anyway, I'm not going to try to say because of all of those good books uh, and difficult books that the book of Ecclesiastes isn't one or the other. It's not difficult to read it. It's pretty straightforward but it makes you scratch your head about some of the things that seem conclusive by the author about various observations that he makes in life. So here we have in verse 16, he says, I saw under the sun in that place of justice there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Well, that's, a, that's an appropriate and a very sound statement. There's nothing, there's nothing uh, tricky about it. There's nothing that's confusing. There's nothing that you would argue with, with, with him about in regards to this. But then he goes on to say in verse 18, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see they themselves are but beasts. Now that might stop you in your tracks and say, what? Is God calling me a beast? Is God calling humankind beasts? Well, the language couldn't be any stronger. Uh, that's a, definitely a pejorative term. It tells us in Psalm 49 verse 20 that man that is honor, man that is in honor and understands not is like the beasts that perish. If a person is ignorant, the Bible's calling that person like a beast. In other words, that's not the normal character of a human being to be beastly. But humans can act beastly, that's for sure. And I think that's probably what the author is aiming at. Now, 
Oh, can we get to our PowerPoint, please? I want to see what's the title of this sermon. Help, I'm stuck. There it is. Do dogs go to heaven? A weird title, no doubt. But when we read what we've read and we're going to say more about it, it could possibly come into your mind. Wasn't there a movie, All Dogs Go to Heaven? I never saw it, but it's popular, was popular, I'm sure. So we're going to kind of answer maybe that question. So... Um, as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, I just want to give us a couple tools to work with. We call these hermeneutical tools, ways in which it's best to interpret Scripture. How do we interpret Scripture? It's really a science that needs to be applied. And number one, we're going to talk about interpreting. should be one, two, three, four. But number one is interpreting is interpreting it, that is the book of Ecclesiastes, without the conclusion of the book. In reading the book of Ecclesiastes, you could be very puzzled by lots of different things that are said. But when you get to the end of the book, there's certain things that jump off the page. It tells us this in chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of thine eyes and in the sight of thine heart. But know thou that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. He had been advising almost before, hey, eat, drink, and be merry. He's saying to the young man, watch out, because someday you're going to be judged. In the 12th chapter, which is the last chapter, verse 13, he says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That's the conclusion. So that's important. How many times have you ever read a book and you kind of get bored with it and you just go to the end of the book or the last chapter? That's the right thing to do. Because you're usually in the last chapter you get the conclusion of the book. I took a, uh, a, a speeding, how to read the, how to read speedily. I forget what the title of the, the course was. It was a summer course on speed reading. And, uh, they were giving us some clues on how to speed read books. I heard an author recently, a couple of years ago, said he reads six to seven books each week. Um, I might get through one in a week, and that's a pretty good clip, but six or seven, I have to believe that he took the same speed reading course that I did, that I have failed on. And I'm, you know, it's amazing how much comprehension can you get when you speed read. Of course, you have to, Make your own judgment. Should I speed read and get little comprehension? Or should I, you know, stick it out and spend, you know, quadruple the amount of time and get more out of it? Well, anyway, most people realize that the conclusion of a book is found at the end. So the end of the book of Ecclesiastes helps us. It casts a light on the whole rest of the book so that we take these earlier things that are said with a little bit of a grain of salt. Now I'm not saying that everything that is said previous to the end of the book is nonsense, but there are things that need to be examined. And that's what I hope I can help you with. So do dogs go to heaven? Let's uh, look a little bit, for instance. Here we have a pet cemetery. 
I don't know about you, but I never heard of that till maybe about 15 years ago. Maybe they've been around forever. I don't know. But I stumbled on one. I think it was in uh, uh, Methuen or somewhere over there. I took a wrong road, and there was before me Pet Cemetery. That wasn't the one that's right here. But um, uh, where do we go here? Get to the number two. Oh, here we go. That's it. Here's just an example of a person that obviously loved their dog. I don't know if you can make it out. But there's a tombstone, probably worth $5,000. I don't know. But um, this is the kind of tribute that was paid to this animal that obviously the owner loved. And I, I know many of you, how many of you have an animal, a pet animal in the house? See, that's about 50% in the room of you have animals in your house. And I bet you love them and you care for them. And maybe you want to give them a burial. I had a woman one time ask me, a Christian, who said, ask me if I would do a funeral for her cat. I said, um, nothing. <laughs> and she got the answer, because she knows she knew it was an odd request, but it did make me realize uh, how much that cat meant to her. And you may have a pet that means a whole lot to you. And I know some people would like to think that they're going to be with their pet in heaven. Um, very sentimental feeling, I'm sure. Um, and I empathize with those that feel that way. And there are passages like this in the book of Isaiah where it says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And here's a little example of children in the midst of these wild, ferocious animals, which obviously in a future day, the animal kingdom is going to be changed. And we'll read a little bit more about that in a second. Here's another one from Isaiah 65:25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. Now, that's an oddity right there. And the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. And the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord the next to last chapter in the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, verse 25. So we do have some examples in the scriptures here that portray a future kingdom with animals enjoying the company there. We have to remember, though, that the Bible, and I've said this before, that the Bible doesn't teach everything that it records. That seems sort of ironic, but no, this is, this is literature. This is... Mankind literature, and that's a fact, that sometimes things are written or recorded that don't necessarily have didactic purposes for us. So, we read here, in verse 19 and following, what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man or spirit. It's, it's the same word, pneuma in the Greek or ruah in the Hebrew. They all have the same spirit, breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. All is meaningless. Meaningless. All go to one place. All are from the dust. Into dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. You know that question, who can know? 
My father used to say every, when I used to witness to him and tell him about Christ and the great salvation and how Jesus died and was buried and rose again, he says, how do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? How do you know where you're going to go after you die? No one died and come back. No one, no one living can tell us that Jesus rose from the dead. Very cynical and critical about it. Maybe this is kind of where the author here is coming from, for the moment at least, saying, all seems vanity. Everybody's going to die. They're all going to return to the dust, just like an animal does. Yet in the ninth chapter, of, and this, this is where you really have to know the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 4 says, He who is joined to the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. So here in one instance, he's saying, we're all going to die. And he, said, he says as well, it's better to be dead than to be alive. But yet in the ninth chapter, he says, at least a living person still has hope. And a living dog is better than a dead lion. Why would a dog and a lion be contrasted or compared? Well, because the lion is the king, the king of all, 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 all the animal kingdom. And dog would be low on the scale. But a living dog, low on the scale, would be better off than a king, a lion that is dead. In chapter 12, again, this is where we need to have the balance. And this has to do with, if we can go back, let's see if I can do this, go back to our original uh, interpretational skills here, right here. Interpreting it without comparison to other passages. This is what we've got to be careful about doing. This would be an error if we interpreted it without comparing it to other passages. And even within the book of Ecclesiastes, you will find passages that will seem to counteract what had been said in another passage. Chapter 12, verse 5, it says, Man goes to his eternal home. So the author is recognizing that there is a destiny to which man goes after he leaves this world. Even in the Old Testament, we know that the author is writing approximately, if it's, if it's uh, Solomon, approximately 900, 1000 B.C. So that takes in quite a bit of, 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 of some of the Old Testament. So when we think of what revelation was given in the Old Testament, we have such a thing as necromancing is forbidden. What is necromancing? That's to seek the dead, to communicate with the dead. How about when um, when um, uh, Saul went to the witch of Endor and wanted to bring up Samuel? She thought that there was, or he thought there's capability of communicating because the Lord hadn't spoken to him by dreams or by the Urim and by a prophet. So he felt like my back's against the wall. I have no no revelation from God. I have no understanding. So he goes to the witch of Endor with expectations that he's going to be able to speak to the dead. Now you might question whether or not it was really Samuel that was speaking. I do think it was. And I don't see any problem with that. But I understand why people might think so. But either way, the point was that there was a recognition that there was life after this world. In Daniel 12, 2, it says, Many of them that sleep in the dust shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Chapter 12, right in Ecclesiastes, it says, The spirit of man shall return to God, who gives it. 
Chapter 12, 5, I said, man goes to his eternal home. So how important it is then that we compare verses with other verses. That's the best interpreter for interpreting the Bible. So rather than isolating a passage here or there and building a theology around one verse, that's an erroneous way to approach the Bible. The third thing here is interpreting it without consideration of the New Testament. Before I address that, I want to say one more thing that when we were talking about the animal kingdom and I showed you the pictures about that glorious kingdom day when when animals are seem to be mingled in with mankind that would be redeemed mankind, we get in the book of Romans chapter 8. I think I have that verse down here somewhere. Um, let me get that for you so you can read it along with me. Yeah, for the creation was subjected to futility. Creation. That's talking about even the animal kingdom. Not willingly, but because of Him, that's the Lord, who subjected it in hope. What hope? That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation is going to somehow break out into a freedom when the freedom of the glory of the children of God is manifested, which will be when at the second coming of Christ, when there will be a transformation of our bodies and everything will be transformed. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans. That includes you and I. We're not in perfect bodies yet. Our groaning has to do with sufferings that we endure in this lifetime, with our age, with our, with our bumps and our lumps and our headaches and our sicknesses and all of that that we endure. The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So while the author, Paul, was writing it to the Romans, he's saying even to this day, we're still all in an air era of suffering, but the day is coming when that will be terminated, when the Lord comes. What a day of rejoicing that will be, when we will be set free. Who's going to deliver me from this tabernacle of death, if I can borrow that passage? The tabernacle, this tent that we dwell in, is a hindrance to us in many ways, physically, but that's going to end at the second coming of Christ when we enter into that liberty. And so all creation is going to enter into it, not just us, but we're going to be the trigger, so to speak, that starts the breakout of all creation into the glorious liberty. And this is where I think the animal kingdom, and it, it's more than just them too, it's all creation, it's, it's a generic term to embrace all of creation, is going to be gloriously transformed. Now that has nothing to do with the unconverted, of course. This has to do with the redeemed people of God and with the creation that was made subject to futility, not willingly. You could say there's innocence that animals have. They they have been affected by the fall of man. And so therefore they are have to be subjected to futility. Not willingly, they weren't engaged in the Adamic fall. We were one with Adam when he fell. So when he fell, you and I fell. We were in Adam. Solidarity. But even creation linked to creation, to all of creation, they groan, and when we're liberated, they will enjoy what we will be enjoying at the second coming of Christ, when all will be set free. Okay, 
Let's see if we can get back to uh, the third point. Am I going the right? Yeah, I'm going the right direction. Interpreting it without consideration of the New Testament. Um, I wish I could switch quicker than this. But this is an important verse in regards to the relevance of the New Testament on the Old Testament. You can't isolate the old from the new. That's, that's, that's an erroneous idea. Not to say that the old has any uh, errors in it. It's not less inspired. But the revelation that was given at the time my brother was talking about when Jesus said there are many righteous men that have not seen the things which you see nor hear the things which you have heard. But now, even Abraham and all the righteous of the Old Testament never heard or saw the things that have been now manifested by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an important verse, 2 Timothy 1, 2 2 Timothy 1.10 that I think highlights this point. It has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. The author of Ecclesiastes did not have what was not yet given until Christ came. So we, we call this progressive revelation. When we get into the New Testament period of time, we're finding things that were hidden in the past that are now being revealed in a much brighter, glorious way. Hebrews 1 says, Hebrews 1, 1 says, God who at sundry times and in divers manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Therefore, because His Son has come, the the revelation has been augmented in comparison to what had been revealed in the past. Not that it was erroneous, but that simply there's a supplement to that. And that's Jesus Christ coming. So when He stands in the synagogue and gives His first sermon, He opens up Isaiah 60, verse 1, and begins and says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And it says, and all eyes were upon him. This is a greater than Solomon that's here. So therefore we can expect whatever the old Solomon wrote, it's going to be exceeded by the greater than Solomon is here. Jesus describes himself as a greater than Solomon is here. If the Queen of Sheba would cross the, the, the oceans to, to hear Him, how much more me? Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the King of kings. All eyes were upon I'd love to have been in that synagogue that day. That's one of the most picturesque places I can think of in the Bible that I would love to be there. I would have loved to be in Cornelius' household too when Peter walks in and says, I'm astounded that even among the Gentiles there are devout people who fear God and say, we are all here before God to hear all things that are commanded you of God. I would love to be preaching to an audience like that. Maybe Sovereign Grace Chapel could even say that too. We are all here before God to hear all things. Boy, that really puts a pressure on the preacher. Anyone that gets in a pulpit, woe unto us, huh? Uh, they should come and we should meet with expectations that God is going to speak through us 
to people who want to say, Speak, Lord, your servant heareth. So that we can go away encouraged and blessed and that we can, we can draw out of the word things that will build up our souls and bring us to a place of worship and glorying to God. Paul talks about things that are now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Ephesians 3 verse 5. So what do we have in the New Testament that helps us to understand the whole of the Bible in regard to this subject about do dogs go to heaven? We all go to one place. Everybody gives up the breath just like, like an animal does and we're all kind of doomed to the same plight. And who knows what's after him? I mean, that's sort of like he's throwing in the towel. Like, this is too much. It ends at death. What's going on? He's puzzled. But in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In Philippians, he says, I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And to die, he says, is gain. Verse 1, chapter 1, 21 and 23. Revelation fourteen thirteen says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors and enter into a place of glory. So there is greater revelation, certainly, in the New Testament. He has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So what Jesus spoke and what he inspired his followers after to write. That's why it says about the Spirit of God, when he has come, he will guide us and teach us and lead us into all truth. I think a lot of that has to do with the immediate disciples in Christ's presence who would be the authors of the New Testament books and who would be the ones that would be communicating the teaching of the kingdom of God. Okay, now let's look at the last one. Um, I want to get to that I think I'm going in the right direction. There we go. The last one right here. Got it. Interpreting, this is the error that can be made. Interpreting it without acknowledging the condition of the writer. The writer. What state of mind was the writer in? You know, God used different writers, authors of the New Testament, Old Testament, who had certain personalities, had certain, you could say, language limits, emotions, feelings, different kinds of people that were used, different occupations, different uh, members of the economic cast, you could say. All, all varieties of life they came from, and yet God used them all in their own particular way. Now what I find so interesting about the book of Ecclesiastes, and just like any other book... I don't know, I bet some of you folks have a, an author of somebody that you really like or a, bi, a, a biography of somebody that you've read. Uh, like, I'm, I'm a George Whitfield fan and I can't get enough of, of, of him. And I've read, I don't know how many different books. Every book that comes out, I want to read it more, read it again about something that I've probably already read, but put maybe a different way. And you, what you want to do is you, you try to kind of get inside their skin. I heard John Piper say that about Jonathan Edwards. He's a John Edwards man, Jonathan Edwards man. And he said, I want to get inside of his skin. Well, that's kind of the same idea in the book of Ecclesiastes. We want to try to get inside the skin of the author and figure out where is he coming 
from. Let's pick his brain. Let's try to get inside of his soul and see where he's coming from. I think some of the experience that the, that the author of Ecclesiastes had is very similar in some ways to the book of Job. You know what Job did? He cursed the day that he was born. Listen to what he says in chapter 3. Why didn't I die in the womb? Why didn't I die at birth? And die as I came forth from the womb. There in death the wicked cease from turmoil. And there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. And slaves are free from their owners. Why is the light of day given to those in misery and in bitterness of soul? Doesn't this sound a lot like Ecclesiastes? Chapter 10, he writes it this way. I can't stand my life. Chapter 10, verse 1. Maybe there's hints here for sure that depression was setting in. Job was letting it all hang out. The author of Ecclesiastes is letting it all hang out. Sometimes it's good to get honest with God. And God's not going to turn His back or His ear away from us. Life's not a bed of roses for everybody. It's not all easy street. People have all kinds of difficulties in life. Maybe you're in debt. Maybe your marriage is awful. Maybe all your children are in jail. Or you're sick all the time. Or no one cares for you. On and on the list could go. Disappointments in your family with your offspring. Life can... I don't ever like to use the word, but you know the word I'm talking about. Life S blank. Uh, that's a word that was nasty in our day, but it's a common one used these days. But I'm going to replace and say that life stinks. Sometimes it feels like it stinks. It's just terrible. There's nothing joyous about it. Those are the valleys that we go through in our life, even as Christians. And sometimes we're in them longer than, than we can imagine. And it's hard sometimes to pull somebody out of that valley when they're in it. The best we can do is to try to get inside their hearts by just conveying a spirit of love. I was talking to somebody uh, in a sister church here. Uh, one of the brothers in the church was murdered. And um, we are talking about um, how, how to minister to the, to the spouse. And um, he said, I just don't know what to say. I said, well, do what Job's three friends did. Just went and attended and sat there quietly and wept with Job. Wept with Job. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Praise God. Uh, We don't leave the bleachers yet. The end of the story hasn't come to pass. But we may have our different trials. Joseph had to go through much. When he was wrongly uh, mislabeled, as if he was a... uh, going to assault the wife uh, in the absence of the husband and was thrown into jail. And then he wasn't remembered in jail when he interpreted dreams. And then when he's free, he names his children. And the names of, I think it was the second one, Manasseh, talks about fruitfulness in the land. In other words, he got out of the depression if, if he even was in it. But it says the Lord was with him at the time. So when we're in depression, we got to... Try to get the Lord's comfort. Get His presence with us. Draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. 
even when you feel so far from Him. Say, God, I feel like a prodigal. I'm in the far country. I have no thoughts of You. I'm totally consumed with what's ailing me right now in this world. Lord, have mercy upon me. Draw near to me. And we can be assured that the Lord will draw near to us. So Job was like Solomon. And maybe Elijah too was like Job and Solomon. When he wanted his life to be taken, he wanted to die when things weren't working out the way they were. I'm sure the Apostle Paul had his down times as well. I'm not saying, suggesting that these individuals, Paul particularly, that in a place of depression would, would, would be inspired to write things about his depression, but we don't have to go to Paul. We find examples in the book of Psalms, of laments. We find uh, Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations about his weeping and about his hurts that he had. Okay. Interpreting it without the acknowledgement of the condition of the writer. What was his condition? Well, if, if it was Solomon or someone of his stature, assuming it's Solomon, he had ups and downs in life. And even when he had the pleasures of life, they didn't seem to satisfy. Because any pleasure that's separated from the Lord is not going to be satisfactory. There's natural pleasures that God gives us in life, and that's why I think the book of Ecclesiastes has that blend of things that I think are worthy of our attention. Like I said, it has helped me personally to kind of lighten up a little bit. At one time I was very stiff and straight-laced and too too um, hard-line and very legalistic-like. Um, and I don't want the pendulum to swing all in the other direction either because that can happen. I've seen that happen. But yet at the same time, I think that there's a desire that God has that we be a cheerful, happy people. And there are certain things in life that can that God ordains for us to be enjoying and partake of. Now let's look at the last slide here, if I can get over to that, maybe going the back way. Yeah. Um, no, that's the text, right? Yeah. Oh, did I go by it? Not that, oh, you like that picture? I gotta get better at this, everybody. Yeah, go through it. I want the, the last uh, slide. There is it. Thank you. This is what Job says in Job 14.10. Again, that is very similar to what Solomon says. I mean Solomon. Yeah, Solomon. Man dies and wastes away and gives up the spirit. And where is he? Again, the uncertainty that he is puzzled about. Where is he? Where do we go after we die? Praise God for a greater than Job, a greater than Solomon, a greater spokesperson has come, the one who himself is life and life eternal, the one who could communicate things that we can bank on and give us perfect assurance. He can pull back the curtain. Who could tell us about a rich man died and Lazarus and where one goes and where the other one goes? A place of suffering and a, and a place of bliss. Who could talk about the afterlife like that? Only Jesus Christ could. 
That's why all the focus is on Him. Now, I'm not saying that we make Jesus' words or the New Testament the red-letter edition of the Bible and that we displace the old. Not at all. But the New Testament is building on the old and giving us hope. And it's not that Old Testament believers didn't have hope from the Bible. The author, is it David, that says, I know that I shall awake with his likeness. He had that peace and assurance. Daniel 12, 2, that when the Lord returns at, at, at the resurrection time, there'll be a blessing for the righteous, those that are saved. And we enjoy it, of course, in the intermediate state between our death and between the resurrection when the Lord comes a second time. In closing, let me just read the last few passages. Evil under the sun. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, verse 1. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who had already, who were already dead were more fortunate than the nations. And there are three categories that he is classifying. You're alive, you're dead, or you never were existing. In other places, we have a fourth category, and that's the time from conception to birth. But this author, particularly, Job is the one that talks about the time period when he was in the womb, which shows that there's man, humanity there in, in, the, in the womb of a woman. He had hoped to die in the womb. So you can die in the womb, you can die when you're alive, you can live, or you could never have been conceived. Now that's inconceivable to think that you had never been conceived. But the author is saying it would be better that he, he hadn't even lived. Didn't Jesus say about the one that has delivered un- me unto you has committed the greatest sin? And it would have been better for him to not even have been born. There's the invisible, unknown world where nothing would exist. No people, no person would exist. Of course, that's fictitious. But nevertheless, it's a reality that if you weren't, if you weren't created in the womb, you wouldn't have been created. But in the mind of God, of course, you were because God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Well, you can see as mixed up as I am is because the book of Ecclesiastes sort of has that mixed recipe in it. You'll read things that say, you can say amen to the other ones. You're like scratching your head. What do you mean I'm like a beast? Or we're like beasts and we die like any, any beast dies. Fully we can say to that because we get the greater light in the New Testament. But what I think the author is doing, and excuse me for that word fully, I don't ever want to put the Bible in the place of classifying such, but I think what the author is doing, how God is using this book, it's like, remember, these are the first chapters that are building up until we get to the conclusion. Now let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. And keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Now he's got the right focus. Now he realizes that the day is coming of judgment when the Lord is going to judge people according to their deeds, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And we know what that means, whether we've trusted the Lord, whether we're counting on God for our salvation or are we trusting ourselves. My hope on nothing less is built than Jesus and the blood He spilt. Read the book of Ecclesiastes yourself. See what you come up with. You read your commentaries if you want as well and your footnotes in your Bible. It's not an easy book, but I think it's a book that really causes a lot of contemplation 
about life and where we're going and some of the realities that we often don't want to talk about as Christians because it seems too bleak to talk on those terms. But it's really true. And I know many, including me, have had times when we feel down and we're in the valley and we feel like this is hogwash almost. But God corrects us. We fall, but He lifts us up. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, for Your Word, for this piece of the puzzle, Lord, that fits into the whole tapestry of what You have in mind, O God, for us to learn by. Help us, Lord, as we try to plow through the book of Ecclesiastes that we can lay hold, Lord, on the wisdom that's definitely found throughout the Word and in the book of Ecclesiastes so that we can grow thereby. And Lord, if anyone in this room doesn't know the Lord as their Savior, truly, Lord, they are living like the beasts of the field that have no hope, that have no assurance of where they will go after this lifetime. Have mercy upon them, Lord. Open their eyes. Give them, O God, the Spirit of God to reveal to them the good news about our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we give you worship, praise, and thanksgiving in the worthy and precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please stand with us.